1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club. Our book for May is The Beguiling H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's words correspondent, and I'm joined today from New York by our fearless leader, editor Julia Turner. Hi, Katie. I'm so excited to be on the show. Does everyone call you fearless leader when you do podcasts?
0: No. Steve just likes to deride and denigrate me, so I'm, I'm very pleased to settle into this welcoming bid.
1: Okay, excellent. And then joining us from Boston, we're very excited uh, actually, to ha- Cambridge. Sorry. Oh, Cambridge. That is the voice of Megan O'Rourke in Cambridge, who is a slate culture critic and a memoirist and poet and writer, and our third participant in today's discussion. Hi, Megan. Hi guys. Hs for Hawk is not easy to classify. It dips in and out of a lot of different genres, from nature writing to memoir to literary criticism to history to biography to, I would argue, prose poetry. But at heart, it is about a woman, an academic, who is grief-stricken after the death of her father, a photographer, and adopts a goshawk for mysterious reasons that hopefully we'll discuss... Along the way, she traces the history of T.H. White, who wrote The Once and Future King and The Sword in the Stone, and who also tried and failed to train a goshawk. Anyway, I would love to just jump right in because I can't wait to hear what you guys made of this book. Megan, what was your general reaction as someone who has written extensively about grief?
2: Well, it's going to be hard for me to give just a quick general reaction because I have a lot of different thoughts about this book, which is a really interesting and very compelling book in many ways. I don't love the word compelling, but as you say, it's a kind of hybrid text, and that's one of its incredible strengths is the way it weaves together nature writing and an extended meditation on T.H. White. And his wonderful, wonderful book, The Once and Future King, which is a book I was obsessed with and from afar obsessed with the falcons in it, the way that uh, Helen in this book is, though I never got near falcons or goshawks or anything like this. And I thought that there were many things about this book that were incredibly artful, incredibly powerful, that it really captured some of the strange riptides of grief and the way it can kind of turn you slightly feral, as she describes it in this book, and the way it can really pull you away from human society, even though it is the most universal human experience and an incredibly profound human experience. And I think that the book is very powerful on this front, although in a lot of ways, any direct meditation on grief takes a kind of backseat to Helen's descriptions of raising and taming. I shouldn't say taming, let's see. Training, really, because the whole point is that these hawks can't be tamed exactly, but trained.
1: Well, manned, and, right? Isn't The verb she uses is manned, which is very interesting for a lot of reasons.
2: Yeah. You know, I have some reservations about the book, too, and some questions, maybe. I only finished reading the book this weekend, and it is the kind of book that I have the feeling I would like to let linger in my mind before I really know what I think of it in some ways, because it is a very powerful book. It really pulls you into its world. But yes, I have some questions for us to talk about and some, and maybe some reservations. So I'm really looking forward to talking about it.
1: And Julia, passing the buck along to you. So I must go on the record here and
0: note that I heartily endorsed this book on the Slate Culture Gab Fest a month or two ago because I just found that the world it plunged me into was so precise and vivid. At one point in the book, Helen MacDonald describes part of why goshawks are so uh, feisty and sulky and difficult to tame is that they're processing the world 10 or 100 times faster than the rest of us. They're just so visually acute that they can understand and see what's going on in the world in a way that doesn't make sense to us blurry, dull humans. And Reading this book to me felt like getting into a more crisp and precise and hyper-focused version of the world, the way in which she pinpoints uh, the way a hawk's feathers look at a particular moment or the cast of light on a field or a specific pang of grief or agony feel incredibly... Acute and almost eerily acute. So, reading it is unearthly and powerful from the get go. I will confess, however, that I was only a third of the way into the book when I made that uh, vivid <laughs> endorsement. And as I went on and continued to read, I found my attention waning a little bit. And, you know, part of that's on me and not on the book, I think, as someone who reads in tired four minute increments at bedtime. But I actually read this book with a group of women I'm in a book group with as well who were were much less moved by it than I was generally. And I think there is something ungraspable and wild in this mm-hmm. book. It's a book that is incredibly compelling sentence to sentence, but a little bit remote and chilly in some ways as an emotional experience. It's a very unusual grief book, I think, in that it does not take as its primary project trying to explain what grief feels like uh, or interpret it for you it's like not a very hospitable book in some ways. So I still deeply admire it, would highly recommend it. I think especially if you're interested in birds, which I am, it's just beautiful. And I loved your note in your review of the book, Katie, about the incantatory language of falconry. There's just so much wonderful wordplay in here and and a great introduction to a whole world of language that's wonderful. But I'm slightly befuddled. I'm deeply admiring, but also feel like just like slightly at arm's length from it in a way that I want to grasp it closer with you guys.
2: I think that the point about it, not kind of, I can't remember exactly what you said, how you phrase it, Julia, kind of dealing with grief in certain ways. I think what I might say, having written a grief memoir, which is, was in some ways a really different book much more frontally dealing with kind of grief and dissecting it and, and sort of inhabiting it and trying to almost essayistically write directly about grief. What I would say, the part of me that it's a poet would say, I think that in this book, she is really writing about grief. It's just that she has a kind of metaphor or trope or You know, objective correlative, as it were, for grief, which is her immersion with the hawk. Because in some ways, what the whole book is about is that she, you know, her father took her to watch birds when she was a child, and she thinks of her father, who was a photojournalist, as a kind of watcher, and that's one of the ways she thinks of herself. Right? As she's kind of a watcher. We take it from her descriptions of herself as someone who is, you know, teaching at Cambridge, but whose parents never went. To university, I believe, that she feels something of an outsider. She's an invisible girl, she calls herself, Um, kind of more comfortable watching people than being watched or seen herself. So it struck me that, you know, she goes and gets this hawk, and the hawk is a way of connecting to her father. Um, It's also a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of objective correlative for the manning of the hawk, the having to be with the hawk, the having to kind of immerse herself in the hawk's world, see as the hawk sees, spend all night watching the hawk, you know, being with it so that she can kind of get it to jump onto her wrist. It takes her away from the world of others, and this is, of course, exactly what grief does. So in a lot of ways, I felt this was a really powerful portrait of grief. It just was highly, it was kind of literalizing a metaphorical experience of it, if that makes sense, through the hawk, which is what makes it so distinctive, a grief memoir, because most of us don't go find a kind of, preoccupation that literalizes our metaphorical distance in some ways, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that seems right to me that it's this it's this metaphor that, you know, as you noted in your review, Katie, it's a capacious metaphor. I mean, it comes to represent and mean many things, and she kind of, you know, twists it around in the light like a prism and, mm-hmm. and uses the, the hawk relationship to get at a bunch of different aspects of grief, which are powerful, but feel, in some ways, it's so calculated and... There's a way yeah. in which that feels very intellectually sophisticated, mm-hmm. but emotionally removed. And that's part of what's so admirable about it and yeah. distinctive, yeah. I think, as you say, Megan, but it is as a reading experience, you know, you are plunged into an anti-human world of numbness and kind of outward facing interests. I'm going to lose myself. I'm going to lose humankind. I'm going to right, obsess yeah. about this hawk and this writer dude. And,
2: and you know, Julia, I think where, I, you know, so so I was saying, okay, so I sort of see what she's doing with that. But that said, I agree with you that there were places in this book where I was fully, fully in it. And I thought it was totally brilliant and, you know, beautifully written and sort of perfectly poised and calculated and and also just very... Very true, not like a kind of, I don't mean to say calculated in any bad way, like you know, really getting at something deep about human experience. But as a writer and a reader, I had a couple questions about it. There were ways in which it, it didn't fully work for me. And one of the ways, I'm sad to say, because I was so overjoyed to find him be a presence in the book. But one of these things was kind of leitmotif of T.H. White and the following of T.H. White and the reading of his book, The Goth I didn't think that this was managed in the book in the best of ways. It felt really protracted in places. It felt kind of underdeveloped in other places. He absolutely needed to be there, and and parts of that meditation on White and his having been abused as a child by his father and having been abused in his schooling and the way that this had kind of turned him into an outsider, it made him a kind of sadist. He was homosexual, and he seems to have had a fascination with pubescent boys. So she's kind of relating to White in all these ways, but White's story is so, so much the story of a severely traumatized person. And then that story becomes a kind of analog for her. And, of course, her trauma is that she's lost her father. But there was something really, a kind of instability in that analog that was fascinating. But it led me to feel that there was, like, a really deep hidden trauma in this book mm-hmm. that wasn't being articulated. And I have no idea if that's true or not. But it the nature of that comparison, right, and the nature of the book's preoccupation with white, you know, and, and of course, I say this, I'm a little bit ambivalent about things because grief can be that hidden trauma. I mean, grief can be so extreme and so capacious. But in some ways, it wasn't clear to me that it was her, I don't know, and, and that's where I thought, okay, maybe, maybe we needed more about the father, maybe we needed more about her relationship with the father, maybe less about the kind of hawk and the animal losing of self. And the other thing I would say is a sort of a similar pacing issue, which was that there was a lot of the hawk. Yeah. And at a certain point, as much as I love animal memoirs, I was like, okay, I feel like we need to go somewhere new in a slightly different direction. There were some sort of structural issues where the book kind of got baggy for me. But, you know, that said, there are just passages here that I thought were completely luminous and and which I'll go back to, I'm sure, and really captured something about being in your late 30s or 40s and being unattached as a woman, you know, having no no children, no partner. At one point, she has no job or no home. And the kinds of ways that your life starts to, the story you tell about your life starts to really change. You know, she has this thing about kind of realizing there are going to be all these broken places in a life. And I thought that was really beautiful beautiful and insightful passage.
1: It's interesting, part of the emotional distance that Julia referenced I think has something to do with not quite being able to place what Like, there's no central argument there's no one analogy or metaphor that sort of carries us through and makes all of this cohere together and I was sort of dazzled but also bewildered and confused sort of trying to sort out or track different lines of imagery or different figures. And I sort of feel like the book tries to contain everything. And there is this sort of like otherworldly quality to her grief that felt part of that like reaching for more impulse. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of that either. I had a real question about that, too, because I learned from the
0: complainers at my book group (laughs) after reading it that this book was written like five or six or seven years after her father died, which is was surprising to me. And then I was surprised that I was surprised because I hadn't realized that I'd been making an assumption that it had been written more immediately. But there is a bagginess or a sort of shape-shifting is a word you used in your review, Katie, slash shapelessness to it and in to it. But she seems so in control of her pitches sentence to sentence mm-hmm. that I couldn't decide whether the elusiveness of the structure of the book was intentional or or not, like whether the inchoateness was an attempt to capture the feeling of the wild unknown and to sort of press up against the reader, this kind of, you know, just sense of vast, infinite, unknowable abyss of pain and, you know, the fundamental, as you say, fundamental human experience, Megan, that everyone experiences at some point. Like she's so able to calculate on the sentence level that I wondered if there was more calculation in the overall structure of the book than I thought, or whether she just was less in control of her pitches structure-wise than she is sentence-wise. Did you guys have thoughts on that? I thought it was a very ambitious book. I think it's a book that is trying to...
2: Okay, if I were going to say, here's if I were going to kind of offer a defense of the book which I think it deserves, you know, I don't mean to be negative about this book at all. I really think this is, you know, she's incredibly talented, this incredibly insightful, incredibly literary and rich in all the best ways. And, and you know, kind of um, I want, the other thing I want to say is that this book kind of thrilled the eight-year-old girl inside of me who, you know, <laughs> loved reading about falcons and loved my side of the mountain and loved reading the once and future, you know, was obsessed with King Arthur and obsessed with Ward and his kind of shape shifting, anim- you know, becoming animals, which she talks about in this book. And I just, there was this way in which entering this book felt like going to a kind of home that I had had as a child and that I haven't really seen written about as as an adult and I know we want to talk a little bit about gender and that's a big part of the book is that it's a woman she's a female you know she's in this world a very male world of falconers and people who are manning hawks and anyway But I think that there are three really big things this book is trying to do. One is to kind of tell the story of losing a father through the story of of raising a hawk. And the other, and I'm getting all my terminology wrong because I am not adept with animals. Okay. And the second is to tell a kind of environmental story, I think. I think a big part of this book is about... The changes in the, in the world we live in and the grief for a changing world and the absolute trauma and terror of having been a child in, in the 1970s or 80s when, you know, kind of the Cold War was going on and nuclear war was imminent. I think that's like a really central part of this book. It's done very deftly. I thought that was incredibly powerful. I think it's really profound. I think there probably should have been a little bit more of that and a little mm-hmm. bit less of imagining T.H. White alone in his cottage. But I thought the part of that strain of the book is just extremely powerful. And then a third, I think in some ways it's a kind of indictment of certain things about Britain and about the education system and about the traumas of being a child in Britain and certainly the once time, the traumas of being sent to boarding school, at least in the past, and about class. I think that's all in there, too. I think all that's really powerful, but it does feel like something's a little bit off balance to me in the book. But one thing I would say was that I felt like there were a lot of really coded and very clever moments of thinking about the literature of grief so that... One of them is she has a moment where she talks about not wanting to be seen, and it really echoes this quote from D.W. Winnicott, who does a lot of stuff on kind of attachment theory and object relations, and he says something about it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. And I felt like that was a kind of crucial quote for this book, and that, that sort of there were moments where she was almost alluding to that. And the thing I will just put out there finally, and then I'll stop talking. I'm talking too much, is that I really feel and I have no reason to know whether this is true or not, but I have to say my experience of reading this book was an experience, a really profound experience of feeling that there was something very hidden in it and that there's some experience that was really hidden that's still not in the book and maybe doesn't want to be in the book. And I've never quite had that experience reading certainly a memoir. Memoirs usually are about so much disclosure. And this felt like a memoir that was about hiding.
1: I could not agree more with that. I mean, I actually, in my review, I said like the one genre that I hadn't seen applied to this book often that I was so surprised by because it seems like a really central one is ghost story. There's almost like a parallel H's for hawk that's existing right next to this one that's sort of like the equivalent of the world that the hawk flies out of our world into, you know, to bring back the spirits of the dead because the hawk is often framed as an emissary from a different world or a spirit world. And I think the book is definitely about sort of fuzzily evoking or hazily evoking presences, whether that's kind of like the shade of T.H. White or of her father, or sort of the weight of English history on the English present. So I completely agree. I think what's frustrating and elusive about the book is also just what's really magnetic about it, which is like always the sense of something right beyond your reach.
0: I was thinking reading this book about a couple of other memoirs, including one that I audiobook clubbed about years ago where we talked about Eat, Pray, Love. And I did it with Steve McCaff and Katie Royfi and barely got a word in edgewise. That's an audiobook (laughs) club for the ages, I believe. You know, but that's an incredibly tidy presentation. That is a very tamed, very manicured kind of bonsai presentation of an emotional transformation. And then I think a more recent book that I liked a lot more than that is Wild by Cheryl Strayed, which is, you know, Wild is almost the narrative of, of finding herself again. And she does kind of flash back into the places where she got lost. It's a lot more rough around the edges and feels a lot more honest in some ways and less tied into a bow than some slightly more cloying memoirs. But it is fundamentally uh, like an organized presentation of human experience Mm -hmm. for a human reader. And there's something about this book. I mean, this is, I guess, the question I'm struggling about, about whether the inchoitness is sort of bagginess that could have been tuned up or whether it's just very carefully calibrated to make the whole thing feel wild and feel eerie and feel not quite human and like it's being transmitted from a distant land or something like it's tuning into some strange otherworldly frequency because she's not it's right it's a memoir without disclosure it's an invitation into grief that does not reveal that kind of reflects outward rather than pulling inward and it doesn't feel like a closed loop.
1: Yeah, well, I hope this isn't like a cliche or falling prey to the formal fallacy or something. But I think part of it is just that grief is such a messy and difficult to pin down emotion. And and one of the things that really fascinated me was her discussion of raptor, which is you know one word for these hawks. They snatch, but also they are the things that fly away and vanish into the dark woods where everyone must go, she says at one point, which is a little bit on the nose. So there's a way in which these hawks are both death and the snatched away and the dead. And that sort of got me thinking about, well, how is it that the birds that she loves are also so cruel and dangerous. And there's a way in which the people who die are incredibly cruel to us by depriving us of their presence in our lives. And I think that all of these sort of ambivalent feelings around someone who dies are expressed in sort of like the weird, messy, contradictory tangle of themes here. And so I thought like it, definitely plunged you into that headspace. I'm not sure if that's worth confusing the reader more than you need to.
2: I don't think we have to make a choice there necessarily. I mean, I don't think messiness... You know, has to imply some of the things that we're talking about. I think, but I think you're totally right that a book of about grief that didn't have a certain messiness or a certain kind of convey a certain kind of rawness would probably be a failed book about grief. But you know, I actually had a question along these lines, which was that one of the things I really appreciated about the book was that it kind of strenuously resisted a kind of therapy. You know, one of the critiques of the memoir is that you know it's this therapeutic mode, right? That it's a mode of witness and it's a mode of saying, look at me, look at what I've suffered, oh, and look how I've overcome, right? And that that kind of vision of overcoming or that vision of triumph can feel a bit pat or that what the reader is asked to do is become a witness rather than a kind of become a literary reader in some sense. And I think this book is very suspicious of the therapeutic mode and very... You know, kind of early on, she talks about having read some of the, you know, memoirs about grief and sort of, you know, having read about the five stages of grief and then she kind of dispenses with that very quickly. Except that then, oddly, at various times she Invokes the stages of grief, which, by the way, are, are basically total bunk. There's this kind of awkwardish beginning where she's say she's setting up her grief, and then she's saying, "I'm kind of not going to go down this one path of really talking about grief directly." And the implication is also not kind of in any therapeutic way. I'm going to do this other thing. Um, she even has a line in the book about that the world of the hawk is a world that doesn't allow certain kinds of language or certain kinds of thoughts. You know, it's this sort of wild, feral animal world, which I, I really loved this part of the book and its portrait of grief. But then she has this problem, which is what is the drama of the book and what is the end of the book? And for me, I think the end was one of the weaker parts because it felt a little bit like she had to find a way to you know, she felt she had to find a way to sum it up. And one of the ways she does that is to say, okay, I went into this wild world and I came out of it. And, you know, and it ends with the idea of home, which is something she hasn't really had until then. And she's actually at a friend's home. But it felt a little tidy to me. And it felt a little like it undid a lot of the work of what had come before. And I think absolutely the, the trajectory from the kind of wild and animal world to the human world is a really important one. And it's probably quite accurate to her experience. But there was something about the last, you know, page and a half that just felt so on the nose, you know, it ends with the the dogs lie flat on the kitchen floor, tails wagging, and the kettle is whistling, and the house is very warm. And I can appreciate that it's probably very hard to figure out how to end this book, but I just wondered what you guys thought. I mean, am I being too much of a curmudgeon by (laughs) wanting something messier there,
0: you know? I hadn't even quite noticed how tidy that is. I mean, the other thing is she's at a friend's house in America, right? She goes to Maine, right?
2: This house is actually back in England. Oh, she's is it? Back is
1: it? Her right, friend right. Tony's.
2: Yeah, she goes to a friend's house, and then the last chapter is being, is back in England. That's ah,
1: okay. Sure. She's pretty... dropping off Mabel to be hibernated for yeah. the winter or something? so she can molt. Summer, yeah. To me, what was notable about that was
0: her kind of letting go of the hawk. She, she used to let the hawk molt for the summer and reenter the human world, so maybe the kind of cliches of that scene are a little more intentional. I don't know. The ending didn't bother me in the same way that the overall unreachability of the book is. But I feel like we spent so much time dissecting the remove of the book that I'd love to spend a little time with you guys on particular sentences or parts that we loved, because I feel like we're underselling how dazzling this book is.
2: And partly I would say we're doing that because the book I just want to say, is complex and serious enough that it actually merits that level of discussion. So I think all the questions and things I'm raising are because the book is actually quite profound. And so I just want to throw that out there. That yeah, it's, yeah. You know, a less good book, it wouldn't be as ambitious, so there wouldn't be these things to, you know, I, all of my kind of critiques or criticisms are really at a pretty high level. I, I think this is a really good book.
0: Katie, you're, you are the prime champion among us, although I think we're all champions in a way. But what's what's a passage that... Knocked you over?
1: Oh my gosh, there are so many. I mean, I just love every single description she has of Mabel, the hawk. When she says she's like gold falling through water, which captures the kind of fugitive beauty of this apparition who is always sort of vanishing out of her grasp. And when she calls her a spooky pale-eyed psychopath, which is great, and a uh, cappuccino samurai. But let me find um, let me find a longer passage. Actually, one thing that I really loved, this is sort of from the T.H. White part of the book, when MacDonald is imagining T.H. White going to Chapel Green, I think it's on page 105, and he's got his hawk, who is not nearly, this is sort of like the bad pupil, the bad student, his hawk is Goss, and Goss is recalcitrant and sulky and awful when Maple is actually surprisingly well-behaved and calm, and he is walking Goss over the... I guess like over the ground of the cemetery at this ancient chapel. And she writes, beneath him, the people that lived and died and were buried here are here still, he thinks. Their old bones would be grateful to see a goshawk again. He walks around the chapel, imagining the earth beneath him turning and muttering as it senses the familiar hawk above, as the bones of farm laborers mutter when agricultural machinery passes over their forgotten tombs. I got chills at that moment. Yeah, she has a, set, a way of opening up
0: any given moment or space and feeling like a portal to history and time and research. I mean, there's another scene right where after she's gotten the hawk home, her own hawk that she's training, where she wakes up in the morning and she hears a chaffinch singing. So you're 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 in this book. It's called H's for Hawk. You hear a bird noise. You're primed to like go straight to the hawk to the bird noise. But her line of writing is so circuitous. She So then she talks about chaffinches and she talks about this study about how chaffinches acquire their distinctive prut noise and how there was this study done during the Cold War where they took chaffinches away from their parents and played them other bird songs and they wondered whether they could learn to be like other birds and to what degree is your nature intrinsic and to what degree is it acquired and could you be brainwashed? And, you know, she suddenly conjures like geopolitics, science, mm. fundamental dilemmas around nature versus nurture. This is like where her brain goes in the morning when she hears a bird <laughs> tweet out the window. And then she's like, uh, she's like, suddenly I realized, here, actually, let me just pull it up here so I can do her justice. So her mind casts across these vast fields, right? It goes racing. And then she sort of returns to the house in her brain. I thought of the house from my dream. I thought of home. And then with a slow, luxuriant thrill, I realized that everything was different about the house I was in. It was the hawk. I shut my eyes. The hawk had filled the house with wildness as a bowl of lilies fills a house with scent. Hmm. She just makes this creature palpable in this way that you can't quite get enough of. I
2: think, you know, obviously she's a beautiful, beautiful writer on a, on a kind of descriptive, sensual level. She's a wonderful describer and there's something really rich about her. But I, I would say that also part of what she's able to do is to try to illuminate um, psychological or or kind of deep conceptual states through meta, through image, not necessarily metaphor, because the hawk isn't a metaphor. Obviously, the hawk is, is a real bird. But she's really able, with a pretty deft touch, to illuminate certain things about the relationship between the wild and the civilized, between the human and the animal, between the mourner and the non-mourner. And there's a moment on page 220 where she realizes essentially why she's gone off and bought this hawk and tried to you know, tried to man it. And I'll just read that paragraph. So she realizes basically that it all had to do with reading T.H. White's book, The Goth Hawk, when she was a child and being horrified reading that book, what she takes to be the kind of abuse that White inflicts on his Goth Hawk, Goth, who Katie was talking about, and that there's just some part of her that had been kind of, you know, taken in by or not taken in by, but, you know, loved this literature of the man and falcon or man and animal that, you know, celebrated the connection. And as she points out in this book, kind of often projected all sorts of kind of normative values on that relationship, right? So all these men writing white, British men, upper-class men, writing about their hawks projecting kind of aristocratic values onto them. And that part of what um, alarmed her about White's book is that it refused to do that and that there was this kind of was a book about not belonging and being an outsider and making a mess of things, but that there was some tr- kind of almost trauma for her in reading that book that – drives her now, in some ways, to get a hawk and to read the book again as she's she's raising the hawk. So she has this paragraph where she realizes that it's about, obviously, kind of connecting to her father. And she writes, "'Goss was still out there in the forest, the dark forest to which all things lost must go. I'd wanted to slip across the borders of this world into that wood and bring back the hawk white lost. Some part of me that was very small and old had known this. Some part of me that didn't work according to the everyday rules of the world, but with the logic of myths and dreams.' And that part of me had hoped, too, that somewhere in that other world was my father. His death had been so sudden. There had been no time to prepare for it, no sense in it happening at all. He could only be lost. He was out there still, somewhere out there in that tangled wood with all the rest of the lost and dead. I know now what those dreams in spring had meant, the ones of a hawk slipping through a rent in the air into another world. I'd wanted to fly with the hawk to find my father, find him, and bring him home." You know, this is just so powerful, and it brings together so many of the themes in the book so beautifully, and and that's one of the real accomplishments of the book, I think, is actually that all these threads are kind of cast out into a a kind of cobweb and pulled together, and this is a really crucial moment in it. So I I really loved her ability to do things like that, not just write, write pretty sentences. But, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, which I think we have to talk about, is the fact that she responded to her father's death by, you know, kind of, having this hawk in her house that, you know, she constantly has to feed dead things to and Mm -hmm. that she has to, you know, kind of go out and the hawk hunts, right? And a big part of this book is about accompanying a hunter, right? And the kind of accompanying an animal that kills and kills in sometimes a kind of horrible way by actually eating the, the rabbit or the bird. It's found not killing it before eating it. And she finds herself actually killing all these rabbits for Mabel because she doesn't want Mabel to kill them by eating them. And that violence is a really, I think, has been a troubling part of this book for some people. And it feels like we need to talk about it. It's clearly very much part of one of the thematic central themes
0: of this book. It's interesting because she seems to turn over in her mind the contradiction of being someone who's been wounded by grief, been wounded by a death, you know, is sort of repelled by the idea of death, is trying to send the hawk back and forth over the boundary between here and the beyond, and yet also becomes like an agent or a handmaiden of death. You know, she's like snapping rabbit's necks so they don't die slowly, having their entrails pulled out tail and stab by tail and stab. And yet somehow the Deathbringer part of her was not as, to me, that... I didn't find it jarring. I found it to be almost in keeping with the like essentialness of the themes of the book, like we all live, we must eat, we must die, we you know, we can be vegetarians if we want to, but a lot of creatures in this world kill other creatures for sustenance and survival. To me, the the, the murderousness felt like it was about life and not about death in a weird way.
1: To me, it felt... I feel like it's... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, to me, it felt like it was about art in a way, like that yeah. this sort of removal this aesthetic removal from the facts on the ground that that bird eye view is sort of like the roving gaze of the artist or something. I guess I wasn't bothered by the violence either, although I suspect that she would have wanted us to be more bothered because the extent to which we're not bothered is maybe the extent to which she's made it palatable through beautiful language or sort of like the charisma of this, as you said, like elemental circle of life narrative. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Go I ahead. think there was one. Part that talked about sort of like the beautiful line of the fighter plane, which is linked to the bird of prey in one passage. She talks about the line of it descending and it, it makes this idea of, you know, drawing lines, creating form and shape and contour, like that is an act of violence it's and that's armature. an act of art. Yeah. So I think maybe that just has also to do with the emotional remove of the book, like the extent mm. to which it's aesthetic and intellectual as opposed to always based in feeling.
2: I really did not feel this intellectual remove that you guys are talking about. I actually felt quite different. I actually thought in some ways it maybe wanted more um, a little bit more deep digging into some of the concepts that were here. I really didn't feel intellectual remove. I maybe at times felt that there was something hidden that wasn't necessarily being penetrated fully, and I don't know if I'm correct in that, but on the violence point, I was actually sort of disturbed and troubled by it, but not in a censorious way or in a sense of thinking she should not have, have this hawk and it should not be, you know, hunting for rabbits that she should not be killing them. I didn't think any of those things. I just thought it really did convey to me some of the kind of deep engagement with death as something absolute. And also that one of the things I thought she did which is a quite hard thing to do, which I thought she did extremely delicately and deftly, was to make the connection between the hawk and the birds of prey and those fighter planes that you were mm. talking about, Katie, and and the war, right, and the war that her father was a, was a child living through. I mean, the book starts with the craters of bombs. I mean, I just feel like war is such a huge subtext in this book and that she's really right to not make too much of it directly, but that prolonged meditation that she has at one point about, you know, killing the rabbits and snapping their necks. And she gives a pretty graphic description of what that's, what that feels like to do. I mean, that was really intense and really Mm -hmm. sensual. And it's some of the the best writing. And I think the way that she made those connections and those kind of evoked that trigonometry, those lines that you were talking about is very powerful and was really trying to say something about environmentalism and what we're doing to the world we live in and our capacity for war, but also our capacities in some ways for love, right? Because she, her conclusion is, yes, she's murdering these rabbits and it murdering is maybe the wrong word. She's killing these rabbits and in some ways it requires what she calls a hardening of the heart, but it's also because she loves this hawk so much and she would never have done it if she didn't feel that
0: love. Well, in some ways she's trying to correct the like, terrible job that T.H. White did with Mm. its hawk through by being like a steadier home and a steadier guide and a steadier hand. I mean, it's interesting hearing both of you talk about the plains, which is a wonderful metaphor through the book. And I think you're right, Megan, that some of the passages around the history of England are, are the most fascinating and interesting and rich in the book. But there is a way in which, of course, the hawk's power is in being a watcher, right? Like the Mm -hmm. hawk's Mm -hmm. competitive advantage is the literal bird's eye view being, you know, able to survey the terrain with heightened senses from a distance, from a remove, and then plunge into strike. And that dispassionate focus, too. And that there's something, there's a, a remove that she's holding herself at. And I know what you mean, Megan, about intellectual. I don't think it's, I don't think that it's the intellectualizing. It's more just the distance from raw yeah. emotion. There's like a, a just j- a jarring juxtaposition yeah. and a powerful one between the accuracy, the acuteness, the precision, the in-the-momentness of the writing. Like you are right there with her and yet you do not feel close, right? And that's well, unusual, I, I yeah. think.
2: It is unusual. I think you're really putting your finger on something central to the book. And I guess how I would put it would be not that there's actually an emotional remove, because again, I didn't exactly experience that, but that there's this profound numbness and depression and that there is a way in which this is the book of a depressed person. Right. And there comes that moment where she suddenly reveals and that she's you know not been paying her bills and that she, she uses the word depressed about herself. And you think, she's not telling us all this stuff. She's talking about the hawk all the time and T.H. White all the time. And we just have no idea of what her life is actually like. And that Dissonance or disparity does create a strain. That creates a real remove for the reader that is a bit destabilizing and maybe, though I understand why she wanted to do it, because I don't think she's someone who's very interested in certain forms of self-revelation. It was a bit... It was a bit tricky.
1: Like another word I would throw into this bouquet of words is purposefulness. Like there's something about Mm. the really burning sense of purpose that she has with training this hawk that distinguishes the book from like a different type of memoir, which is kind of this is my lifeline, this is, you know, events in my life unfolding. And for her, she has a project. Like she is going to man this hawk and That's a distinction, but it's also a misdirection, right? Because it's not really what the book is about. And so there's a conflict between this incredibly intense sense of purpose and focus and directedness that is sort of directed towards not the heart of the matter, which is her grief and her her Mm -hmm. feelings of loss around her father. And I guess one thing that really jumped out at me on page 50, she says... The more expert you were, the less likely you were to call anything by its proper name. And I just thought Mm -hmm. that it's a testament to her expertise as a writer that she can have it both ways, can have this sort of unspoken, incredibly powerful thing happening in left field and then on the right side is pursuing this other narrative with such clarity and lucidity and beauty. That's so...
2: Beautiful, Katie, and I think you're totally right. And it also, isn't it? It's what life is like. I mean, she really did capture something about how we experience our emotions and how we experience loss and how we experience these really profound currents in our lives. And I think that's such a beautiful explanation of it. So thank you for that. And also used the word burning, which is one of her favorite words <laughs> that she uses over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a quest, right? I mean, it's explicitly a kind of quest story.
0: Right. And I think in some ways, the thing that feels distancing about it, the way her grief sneaks up on her, the way her own depression seems to sneak up on her, which she kind of captures in the narrative and surprises the reader with, which does make you feel like, wait, I thought I was right there with you this whole time, but actually I had no idea what was going on in your head or your life because in a way you didn't. That moment, that messiness, that untidiness, that inability to say, here are the steps in my progression of self-understanding is part of what feels true.
1: After all this, would you guys recommend H's for Hawk?
2: I would definitely recommend it. And and I would recommend, I'd like to recommend along with it, though, T.H. White's The Once and Future King and maybe something like My Side of the Mountain, which is a kid's book, which is really fabulous. So I would recommend this in a sort of context. And actually, I started watching Kenneth Loach's film Kess last night, which is also an amazing film about Britain. And I can't, I'm a little bit like Julia recommending H's for Hawk before finishing <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of it,
0: so... <sighs> I would also recommend it, especially if you like or are interested in birds, which I am. It's like a beautiful bird portrait in addition to everything
1: else we've described. Oh, I wish I had asked you more about what it was like as a bird connoisseur to read this book. But part two, H is for Hawk, June. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, guys. This was really great. Thanks, Katie.
0: Thanks.
1: A program note. Our next Audiobook Club selection is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dorr read it and join us for our discussion in June. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com/books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com/abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com/slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. The ABC is part of the Panoply Network. For Megan O'Rourke and Julia Turner, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.